You can take your Bibles and turn to the book of Titus this morning. Book of Titus. This has been an interesting week in probably all of our lives with uh, my mom passing away, the memorial service yesterday and all the preparations this week. And probably because of that, the Lord has just put on my heart this idea of hope. I heard several people yesterday mention that even though it was a memorial service, it wasn't overcome with grief and sadness. It was a rejoicing, really, that was present. Joyful hearts, because we know that Mom is in heaven with the Lord and that many of us have the same hope that she has that we're looking forward to being in glory in heaven with Christ. As I was reading this week, the Lord just brought me to Titus chapter 2, just to several verses here, three or four verses, that I want to look at. And the question is, where is your hope? This morning we talked in Sunday school about lying and about leading people to believe things about us that may not be true. And although... All of us here are family and friends, and we all claim to know the Lord. You know, I don't plan these messages. The Lord doesn't give me these messages based on who's present. This is what the Lord has me to share with us today, but it's good for us to hear all of it. So I want to start in Titus chapter 2 and read just verses 11 through 14 together. Titus 2, 11 through 14 says, For the grace of God that bringeth salvation, hath appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and of our Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave Himself for us, that He might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto Himself a peculiar people, zealous of good works. Let's take a minute to pray and then we'll continue on. Father, I thank You again for Your Word. We know that it is truth. We know that it has everything we need to understand Your will for us. And Lord, You've given us hope through the truth of Your Word, the message that it tells us about Your Son and how He died for us to pay the penalty for our sins be the propitiation for us so that we can be reconciled to You. Lord, we can find hope in that. So Lord, as we look at Your Word, I pray that You would reveal to us the truth of the things that You want us to understand today. I pray that You would challenge us with the truth of Your Word, that Your Spirit would go with us and guide us, that He would be present to help us understand and hear the things that You want us to hear open our hearts and open our minds and help us to be ready to receive Your Word this morning. Lord, I pray that You would empower me now. Give me strength. I pray that You would give me the words to say that so that what's proclaimed today would be Your truth and not man's opinion, that we might be challenged with You to desire You more, to desire more of Your truth in our lives so that we might have this hope without a doubt, knowing that You will bring us to be with You when we end this life on this earth. So Lord, guide us now. We give this time to You. 
May you be glorified in it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Titus is Paul's letter to a pastor who was going to the church at Ephesus to try to solve some problems in the church that were there. And if you read through Titus, you can see that Paul outlines some specific things. And it's things that he wanted Titus to tell these people. It was starting in chapter 1. He talks about the proper leadership that should be there in order to make things happen the way they should happen. Chapter 2 and 3 and 4 talk about our relationships with different aspects of people and society in church, outside of church, and different things uh, as far as our life in general. When we get to chapter 2, it's interesting. I'm going to point out a word that he uses over and over, but he he starts with make sure that everybody understands what their lives should be like. Um, He talks about the aged men. He addresses them first in chapter 2. And then he talks about the aged women and what their responsibility in their lives should be. And then the younger women and then the younger men. So he covers everybody. Nobody's left out here. And as we get down to our passage this morning in verse 11, he's describing our lives and he says in verse 11, finally, because all we do all of this and all of this should be in place because or for the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. And then he on that and says, here's our hope. And this is the reason that we do all of these things and that we should conform our lives in holiness to what God's plan for us is. And so as he outlines the substance of all this teaching and, or the foundation of why we need to pay attention to all this, he gives us the essence of hope here. And what hope really is, where it should be founded, where it starts from, where it's going, to help us understand, okay, do we really have true hope, or is our hope founded in something that's really not going to get us what we expect? Is it a false hope? So this morning I want to try to keep it simple, and I say that a lot, um, but I am going to try to keep it simple this morning, because it's a simple message and yet it's a profound message. And it's one, even as Christians, we need to be reminded of to make sure our focus is where it needs to be. First of all, in verse 11, he tells us that our hope originates with God. Outside of God, there is no hope at all. God is the author of hope. And it's based on His grace. He starts in verse 11, For the grace of God that brings salvation hath appeared to all men. Here's the beginning of hope. Think about the story of mankind. God created the earth. God created all that was in the earth. God created Adam and Eve, sinless beings. They rebelled against God, went their own way, and because of their sin, all of them now. We're all in bondage to sin. If that was the end of the story, we're hopeless. As Paul said, if the resurrection of Christ never happened, if this is not true, We're of all men most hopeless, most miserable. So hope starts with God, and it starts with the fact of God's grace. We were hopelessly lost, headed for hell, but because of God's grace we have hope. So it has to start with God's grace. Our hope then can be secure because of what God's done. Not because of what we've done, not because of what we think, not because of what we earn, or anything that we think we merit, it's because of what God's done and who He is. 
So our hope is only secure because of what God's done. Christ's message to the Pharisees and other people in the New Testament came down to this. If you're trusting in your own righteousness, your own works, your own goodness to get you to heaven, you're not, it's not going to work. You're lost. You're hopeless. Okay? The Pharisees were the epitome of what they thought a Christian should look like. This is the way to do it. This is the law. We do everything according to the law, to the letter of the law. And so we have fulfilled everything that God expects of us. And Christ says to them, and He said specifically to some of them, okay, it's not that you should ignore that, but you've missed the important matter here. What you've missed is the heart of the matter. What you've missed is that it's God that does this in you and not yourself. And because you've missed that, you are hopeless. So it's based on God's grace. It's based on what God has done. Anytime we try to have hope in what we can perform or accomplish for God or how good we can make ourselves so that God will see us as acceptable, that's when we lose hope. That's when we fail. The flawed nature of man can never be consistent enough or good enough to be the foundation of hope because we will always fall. We will always fail. Okay, you think about the one thing that you do best. doesn't matter what it is. Think about the one thing that you do best. And you can tell people, yep, this, this is the one thing that stands out. I can do this, and it always turns out well. Okay, now we've just lied, for one thing, and we talked about that this morning, but does it always turn out well? Do we always do it perfectly, whatever it is? No. Okay? There are times in our lives when we make mistakes. There are times in our lives when circumstances prevent us. Whatever the circumstance, whatever the, the issue is, we try our best to do things, and inevitably, sometimes we fail. So we're never consistent enough. So the analogy here is, if we're trusting in what we can do to earn salvation, no matter how good we are, we're always going to fail. Romans chapter uh, 3 tells us, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We have failed. So we can't trust in our own merit, in our own functioning, in our own skill, our own righteousness as a foundation of our hope because hope has to be built on something that's secure and absolute. And if you put your hope on something that's shaky, it's something that's going to fail, then we have no hope. Okay? Um... I shouldn't use this example because Dad's here, but our cars growing up were not something that we put our hope in. Okay, It was more in the ability of my dad to keep them running. And prayer, I think, kept them going more than anything else. But we never knew. Were we going to make it to church? Were we going to make it to school? You know, We hoped, we wished that we could. But if we were going to put our absolute hope in those cars, they were going to fail. Sometimes we didn't get there. And that's the way people live their lives. We put our hope in things that fail. And when we do that, we're hopeless. So it starts with something that's absolutely secure and consistent that will never fail. God's grace. God's grace is never going to fail us. Okay? God's grace is that security, is that foundation that we have to put our hope in. So what does His grace bring? In verse 11 He says, For the grace of God 
that brings salvation hath appeared to all men. There's the foundation of hope. We were totally lost in sin, and God's grace, which will never fail, which will never change, which will never be inconsistent, now brings salvation to us. Here's the answer. Salvation. That we can be reconciled to God in. And it says, His grace has revealed salvation to all men. See, God has done everything necessary for all men to be saved. There's nothing more that God has to do. Nothing more. It's all done. It's taken care of. When Christ said, it is finished, it is finished. God's done everything necessary for men to be saved. And God has done everything necessary to bring the message of that news to all people. So the Bible says, His grace has brought salvation and it hath appeared to all men. The word appeared here is an interesting word. It uh, is translated revealed. And the picture in the Greek, a rising sun. There's a Japanese tradition and their whole society, their whole religion is built on the sun, the rising sun. But this is exactly the picture that Paul's painting here. Think about the sun when it comes up in the morning. How many people does it shine on? Everyone. It slowly reveals itself until it's right up overhead, shining right down upon us, but there's not a single person on this earth that the sun does not shine upon. That's the picture that Paul's painting here. He's saying the revealing of salvation in Christ has come up. There's nobody can say, you know what, I didn't get to experience the news of that, or that wasn't revealed to me. Romans chapter 1 tells us God has revealed His truth, the truth of Himself and the truth of His Son in creation. God has revealed Himself in His Word. No one is, is without excuse. So, God has revealed His salvation to all men. Everybody. There's nobody that has an excuse. 1 John chapter 2, verse 2 says, He is the propitiation for our sins, not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 10, For therefore we both labor and suffer reproach, because we trust in the living God, who is the Savior of all men, especially of those that believe. So there's nobody left out here. This hope is available for every single person that has ever lived. All men. So it's a universal hope. So our hope originates with God. It's founded in His grace, which will never change. It's revealed to all men, and it's in salvation. Number two, our hope is determined by our present condition. He goes on in verse 12, gives us the, the origination, the foundation of hope, but he says in verse 12, teaching us, and here's the grace of God, the grace of God teaches us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. So our hope is determined by our present condition, the present condition of our heart, not what we think, not what we wish, not what we strive for, but our heart. Where is our heart focused? How we live in this present world is a demonstration of what our heart is. Proverbs chapter 4 23 says, keep your heart with all diligence, for out of it are the issues of life. When we talk about faith, when we talk about what we believe in, it doesn't matter what we say. 
What matters is how we live, because what we believe affects the way we live. The common illustration is when you came in this morning, you didn't pick the chair up, turn it over, make sure it had four legs, make, you know, put a little weight on it, test it out, and eventually sat down very gingerly until you finally got all your weight there. Okay, you came in, you saw the chair, you sat in it. Some a little softer, some a little harder. Okay? But you sat down because you believed that chair would hold you. That was faith. How we live doesn't determine our faith. How we live demonstrates our faith. It demonstrates what we really believe. Yesterday we heard the illustration of the tightrope walker. He could back and forth with the wheelbarrow. And everybody believed he could do it and everybody clapped and cheered and everybody believed that he would not fall until he invited somebody to get in the wheelbarrow. Then belief went away. And that's what this comes down to. What is your belief? What is your faith in? And how does it affect how you live? Because how we live tells people what we really believe. Matthew chapter 7, verse 16 through 18, Christ said this, You shall know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes of thorns or figs of thistles? Even so, every good tree bringeth forth good fruit. But a corrupt tree bringeth forth evil fruit. A good tree cannot bring forth evil fruit, neither can a corrupt tree bring forth good fruit. See, our works reflect our heart. And what our heart is, is what we are. That defines you. That's why we're instructed to, to protect our heart, keep our heart, guard it. Because what that is, is what we are. So our hope is determined by the present condition of our heart. Now, what Paul says here is that God's grace teaches us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. What does that have to do with our heart? Our heart condition will determine how we approach these topics or how we approach this lifestyle. Okay? What are my goals? What are my motivations? What are the things I'm striving for and really living for? That's what will be determined by the condition of my heart. And in fact, the condition of my heart determines whether I have true hope or not. And it will be shown in our lifestyle. See, God's grace, in verse 12, says God's grace teaches us that a truly changed life, a truly changed heart, will live differently than someone who's not been changed. That's why he says it teaches us that denying ungodliness, ungodliness is a standard for someone who has not been regenerated. That's the style of life. That's the heart condition. I do not need God. Proverbs tells us, uh, and I don't remember the specific verse, I'm sorry, but um, it says that the wicked regard not God in all of their thoughts. His, his, their, their, he, they don't have Him in all of their thoughts. That means if we have thoughts apart from God, that's iniquity. Um, Proverbs 3, 5, 6. We're not to trust in our own understanding. We're to trust in God completely. And He will show us the way to go. Okay? So, all of our ways. Our thinking is determined by what our heart is. Our lifestyle is determined by what our heart is. If we're not in the mindset, and if our heart motivation is not to deny ungodliness, then we haven't really been changed. Our hope is not founded in something that's really true. The word deny ungodliness here, the word deny, actually in the 
in the original language is interpreted to disavow, contradict, or outright reject. Now think about that. Look at what it says. Teaching us that rejecting or disavowing ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. So he gives us two sides of the coin. Here's what we should not be motivated by. We should not be motivated by ungodliness or worldly lusts. Now, ungodliness, that's the good one. I mean, or that's the one that's easy. No, we don't want to be ungodly. Of course we don't. That's wrong. What about worldly lusts? Well, what do you define as worldly lusts? Go over to 1 John chapter 2. I don't need to define it because God defined it Verse 15 says, Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. We could stop there and that would be, Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. What it means is, don't love the philosophy, the lifestyle, or the stuff of the world. That should not be our motivation. That should not be what we're living for and by. And then he goes on, verse 16, For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world passes away, and the lust thereof. But he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. Here's a phrase that we want to overlook. We want to this. All in the world. in the world. Those are the things that we're not to live for. Yesterday, we had a memorial service for my mom who passed away. What did she take with her? Her soul. Her spirit. The spiritual part of her. Nothing else went. All that was in the world is still here. The spiritual part of her is gone. It's in heaven. And that's why Paul says, and John supports it, our goals in life, our motivation should not be at all focused on anything that is in this life. Because this life is not what matters. This stuff is not what matters. The philosophy of the world that I have to be first. I have to get the stuff I need. I have to supply my needs above other people. That's the philosophy of the world. That's what First John says. Avoid those things. Don't love that thinking. And when we come back to Titus chapter 2, he says, denying ungodliness and worldly lust. God's grace teaches us that that stuff is not important. And it's not important so that we just ignore it. He doesn't say ignore it. What does he say? Outright reject it. Don't tolerate that thinking. That's humanism. Go to First Peter chapter. First Peter chapter four. Let me read the first four verses with you. First Peter chapter four. He starts. He says, "For as much then as Christ hath suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves likewise with the same mind. For he that has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin." I'm going to stop there for a second because this is one of my favorite verses in the New Testament, to illustrate what the Christian life really comes down to. 
the picture that Peter paints for us in, chap- in verse 1 of this uh, chapter. He says, For as much as Christ has suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves likewise with the same mind, for he that has suffered in the flesh hath ceased from sin. The word suffered there is interpreted stripped away. And the picture that Peter is painting is one that was very familiar to Christians in this time period because this is when Christians were being persecuted by Rome. They were being burned alive. They were being fed to lions. They were being tortured. They were being crucified. One of the things that happened to them was that they were skinned alive. That's the analogy Peter's pointing to. And what he wants us to understand is this principle of Am I living for the flesh, the worldly lusts, or am I living for God? And as we suffer in the flesh or have the flesh stripped away, literally to skin alive the fleshly lusts, so that all we're left with is the real substance, that's when we start to understand what God's will for us is. That's when we start to live the way God wants us to live. And in fact, it says, when all the flesh is stripped away, look at the end of verse 1 then we will cease from sin. Because that's where sin resides. Verse 2, He that, I'm sorry, that he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh to the lusts of men, but to the will of God. For the time past of our life may suffice us to have brought the will of the Gentiles when we walked in lasciviousness, lusts, excess of wine, revelings, banquetings, abominable idolatries, wherein they think it strange that you run not with them to the same excessive riot, speaking evil of you. I don't know how people who are serious about the Bible could ever come to the conclusion that in order to reach the world, we have to become like the world. This passage tells us just the opposite. If we are children of God, if we have our hope in Christ, in what's to come, not what's here and now, all of that goes away. We deny ungodliness. We deny worldly lust. That's what the grace of God teaches us. That there's no hope in anything except Christ. And so there's no motivation except Christ. All the rest of it's going to go away. And so we're wasting our time if that's what we're seeking after. A sanctified life. And look how he describes it if you go back to Titus. In Titus 2, it says, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, okay, here's what we need to get rid of, stripping away the flesh. Then he says, okay, we should live how? <clears throat> soberly, righteously, godly in this present world. I love that word, soberly. Go back to the beginning of this chapter. Okay, I, I gave you the introduction. I said, okay, he addresses these four categories of people, the old men, the old women, the younger men, the younger women, and we're all included here. And look at how he starts. This is his instruction to a pastor what he should be teaching each of these groups. He says, but speak thou the things which become sound doctrine. Okay, this is the foundation of what we need to understand the Bible teaches. That the aged men be sober. Same word. That we should live soberly. The aged men be sober, grave, temperate, sound in faith and charity and patience. The aged women likewise. Referring to sober and grave, and temperate, and sound, in faith, and in charity, and patience. He says that they be likewise, that they be in behavior as becometh holiness, 
not false accusers, not given to much wine, teachers of good things, that they may teach the young women to be sober, to love their husbands, to love their children, to be discreet, chaste, keepers at home, good, obedient to their own husbands, that the word of God be not blasphemed. Young men, likewise, exhort to be sober-minded. That's an important word in this chapter. So what does sober mean? The word sober, or to live soberly, is interpreted to live in sound mind and under control. Now we use the word sober in context of the opposite of being drunk. And that's a great illustration to understand what it's talking about. When someone is drunk, their senses are dulled, they have no control, or they have lack of control over their bodily movements, bodily functions, how they act, how they speak. They're just bumbling around. And eventually they'll pass out. That's drunkenness. The opposite of that is sober. So what would sober mean? To be in your right mind, to be in total control of your faculties, to live rightly. So how are we supposed to control ourselves? Here's the word, temperate. All right, temperance. The temperance movement is to, to abolish alcohol because alcohol makes us drunk. The idea was we will remain in control of our faculties, we'll be able to live with a sound mind. And it's exactly the picture that we have here. To live sober. Our sound mind comes from being grounded in God's truth. Romans 12 tells us that our minds have to be renewed by the Word of God, transformed. That's the transformation that takes place in our thinking. So when we live soberly, we're of a sound mind, under control, not just of ourselves, but under control of the Spirit of God. Temperance or self-control of the Spirit, it doesn't happen apart from God's influence in our lives. So this idea of sober, teaching everyone to live soberly, Paul's telling Titus, this is what you teach, this is sound doctrine, teach them this, that your life should be controlled by God's Word, you understand it with a sound mind, and that you should live controlled by the Holy Spirit in self-control or control of your flesh so that you will fulfill the Word of God and the will of God for your life. So he says, deny ungodliness, deny worldly lusts, and instead live soberly. But then he keeps going. He says, live righteously. Righteously. The word there, the root word in the Greek, means to be innocent or holy. Now when we look at holiness, holiness has been misdefined by so many people today, I don't think we even, many people don't even get the scope of it anymore. Holiness is not some abstract that we try to define for ourselves. Do I fit this idea of holiness? Well, yeah, I think about God a lot. I want to do what's right, so I'm holy. That's not it. Holiness, we have to define from God because God started holiness. God is holy. That is the essence of His character. And as we look at who God is and what that means, it means He is totally apart from sin. It means He is absolutely perfect without sin. And 1 Peter tells us, when you understand that, that's the model that we should follow. As I am holy, be ye holy. So, righteously is without sin. We just saw in 1 Peter 
how we can live without sin is to strip away the flesh. So, to live soberly, in sound mind, under control, to live righteously, stripping away the flesh, so that we're totally separated from the world, separated unto God for His purpose, and then he says, live godly. Piously is the interpretation, or reverently. And this word means with an awareness of God's continuous presence. How would we act if God were standing here in person all the time and we knew He was watching everything we did? It's not a hypothetical because that is the reality. God is with us all the time watching everything we do. And it's that mindset that should cause us to live godly. Because we are in God's presence. How do you act when you're in the presence of a king? How do you act when you're in the presence of the king? That's the model that all of your life should be based on. Not just when you come to church. Not just when you start to pray. That's life. Because God is present all the time with us. That's that word godly. How does God expect you to live? Knowing He's with you, watching you. First, or 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, a familiar passage. If any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. All things become new. Okay? What many people see salvation to be is, I'm going to add God to my old life, so that I can have heaven and have the world too. It doesn't work that way. We just saw in Titus and 1 Peter and all through the New Testament, the message is eternal life is not about adding God to my life because you don't get eternal life. God doesn't add eternal life to you. Eternal life is only found in Christ. God is eternal. You don't have eternal life apart from Him. So when we're given eternal life, we are brought into Christ. We are grafted into the vine. And the life is in Him. Apart from Him, there's no life. So we can't add Christ to our worldly life and have salvation. Life is found only in God. So it's a sanctified life. We're a new creature. New life. Everything's different. And that's the picture of Titus. And this is what Paul's telling Titus. These are the things you need to preach to people to help them understand this is the truth. That we deny ungodliness, worldly lust. We should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. How we live demonstrates the condition of our heart and our thinking. So when we evaluate our life and we start looking at, okay, how do I live based on what God wants me to be, based on the fact that God is right here, standing with me, inside of me, evaluating everything I do, do I meet His standard? And we all have to come to the conclusion, no, I fail. And yet that should be the goal. That's what Paul says in Philippians chapter 3. I strive for that mark. I look for that high calling of God in Christ Jesus. That's what I'm striving for. I haven't attained it yet, but that's what I'm striving for. But it's all based on what do we really believe? Because that determines how we live. So our hope, the real hope that we have, 
is determined by our present condition of our heart. And then in verse 13, he says our hope is focused on the future fulfillment. It's not about the here and now. It's what we're looking forward to. Looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior Jesus Christ. Looking. Looking forward. Not looking here and now. Not holding on to the stuff that I can see, that I can hold. It's what's to come. That's the real hope. Hope is is focused on future fulfillment. Think about this. And and Paul defines this in in Romans chapter 8. Go over there for just a minute. Romans chapter 8. Romans is the great discourse on salvation. If you have questions about salvation, you can probably find the answer in Romans. But you go to Romans chapter 8. Romans 8 discusses this idea of what hope really is. If you go down to verse 17, he says, and if, if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if so be that we suffer with Him, that we may be also glorified together. For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. Peter uses the same argument, by the way, in 1 Peter 1, when he talks about the trials that we have to go through, the suffering that we have to go through. It's nothing in comparison with what's to come. That's the idea, he says. Uh, Verse 19, For the earnest expectation of the creature waiteth for the manifestation of the sons of God. For the creature was made subject to vanity, not willingly, but by reason of him who has subjected the same in hope. Because the creature itself also shall be delivered from bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groaneth and travaileth in pain together until now. And not only they, but ourselves also, which have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting for the adoption to wit, the redemption of our body. For we are saved by hope, but hope that is seen is not hope. For what a man seeth, why doth he yet hope for? But if we hope for that which we see not, then do we with patience wait for it? What Paul's saying is, if you're hoping, if your hope is based on what you can see in the here and now, all the stuff that you can get in the here and now on this earth, on the temporal instead of the spiritual, then you have no hope. You've already got your reward. Real hope is based on what hasn't happened yet. And in Romans chapter 8, he said, what hasn't happened yet is the redemption of our bodies. Hope is founded in what's to come. If we're so focused on what is here, we're going to miss real hope. Because this is nothing Hope is founded or focused in future fulfillment. The best is yet to come. That's the message of the whole Bible. The best is yet to come. Christ is going to come back. And then the real fun begins. That's the good stuff. Hope is found in knowing that our present life is nothing in comparison with what we have to look forward to. C.S. Lewis put it this way, He said, looking at the Gospels, it seems that our Lord Jesus finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We're half-hearted creatures, fooling around with drink and sensuality and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by an offer of a holiday at the sea. People who put their hope 
in the mud pies of the world, if that's all they have to look forward to, they have no hope. Real hope is found in what's to come. My mom now is experiencing the reward of real hope. That's where we should be looking. What we desire shows where our focus is. What is our desire? Is our desire wrapped up in all that's around us here or is our desire for what's to come? When you think about it, look at it this way. We can determine if we have true hope by how we feel about Christ's return. Now, we can say, okay, I can't wait for Christ to come back. We're all going to go to heaven. Okay? But when Christ comes back, something else is going to happen too. There's going to be judgment. Okay? Eventually, we're all going to stand before God and we're going to be judged based on what our lives were. Not about how much good we did or how much bad we did. It's about what we were. And we're all going to be judged by that. Were we in Christ with the hope of being in Christ? Or was our hope founded in this world? That's what we'll be judged by. So when Christ comes back, all of us are going to stand in judgment. Are you looking forward to that judgment? Because for some of us, God is going to say, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Enter into an eternity of happiness. Enter into the glory that awaits you. Or, when you think about the judgment standing before God, are we afraid? Because of what God's going to see. If our hope is in Christ, all the bad that we've done has been washed away. It's under His blood. The Bible says He's removed it from us as far as the east is from the west. So, there's nothing to be afraid of when we stand in God's judgment. But if we fear that we're going to have to stand before God's judgment, then we don't really have hope. Because if we're afraid of what God's going to judge us for, then we're not trusting in the blood of Christ to save us. We're trusting in, hoping in, that we did enough, that we were good enough, that God will let us in. And that's never going to happen. So our looking forward to the judgment really determines where our hope is. Are we hoping in the blood of Christ? Is our confidence in the blood of Christ? True hope looks forward to Christ's return, including the judgment, because we know that we've been cleaned, we've been covered in the blood of Christ. Hope longs for the day of Christ's return more than anything else in this life. One pastor put it this way, if heaven is your destination, heaven will be your motivation. The word hope is an interesting word. Many people, again, don't understand it. It's not, I wish for, I really hope it happens. The word hope in the New Testament is talking about an absolute confidence. An absolute confidence. And as I said before, hope can only be grounded in something that is absolutely consistent. will never change. We know it's going to happen. So where is your hope? What is your absolute? The Bible says in James 4 or 14 that our life is but a vapor. Okay? Let me put it in perspective for you. This is where hope is really found. This is if you know your hope is planted in something that is absolute. Are you going to get up in the morning? Maybe, if God wills. Are you going to eat lunch today? 
maybe, if God wills? Are we going to finish this service today? Maybe, if God wills. Is Christ coming back and are we going to stand before Him in judgment? Absolutely. Because the Bible has told us that's the way it's going to be. So if our hope is based in, well, I'm going to get through this day, well, I'm going to do this or that tomorrow, well, I'm going to do, these are my goals for this life, we have no hope. But if our hope is in the fact that God is going to bring me through this life and I'm going to let him live through me to accomplish what he wants on this earth, and eventually we're going to go to be with the Lord and that's what really matters. That's the only absolute we have. The only thing that's absolutely certain about our future is that God will send Christ back. He will return. We will go with him to be judged before God. And we will either end up in heaven or in hell. That's the absolute. That's the only absolute. So all that matters in this life is whether we're ready and looking forward to the return of Christ. What is our hope based in? And then quickly in verse 14, our hope is manifest in patient endurance. He said, if that's your hope, here's what your life will be like. It says, who gave himself for ransom for us, that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify us unto himself. Okay, Here's what Christ is doing in us through his blood. And then he says, what will you be if that's happening? A peculiar people, zealous of good works. Now we come back to the present. If your hope is founded in the absolute of the future, then this is what your life is going to look like right now. We're becoming a peculiar people that have been sanctified by God. And what is our motivation? Good works. Not good works of the law. Not good works of what we can produce from ourselves. But this is talking about the fruit of the Spirit. If you go to Galatians chapter 5 of past, the contrast is the works of the flesh. And then he goes to the fruit of the Spirit in verse 22. But the fruit of the Spirit, this about here. Are we manifesting the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, faith, in our life, temperance, in our as an evidence that God is working in us and that God's Spirit is directing us and controlling us? And we are performing things in accordance with that character of Christ that's being instilling us. That's the good works that will be evident in our lives if we have true hope. Because Christ is doing that work. But look at the word specifically at the end of that verse. He doesn't just say doing good works. He says zealous of good works. The word zealous is a whole different... Okay? It has an absolute desire... to covet, to earnestly desire. That's the thing I want most. And so he gives us a chance here. If our hope, if the thing we desire most, if our motivation is in what's to come with Christ, then our hope, our motivation for living on this earth is for God to manifest himself in our life. And that's the evidence of true hope. Let me give you an illustration. And you can turn to 1 Corinthians 15 while I give you this. We'll come back to 1 Corinthians 15 in a minute. A number of years ago, researchers performed an experiment, a scientific experiment, to see the effect that hope had 
on laboratory animals. And so they took rats, two sets of rats, and they had a tank of water. And one by one, they would drop a rat in the water in their first stage of this experiment. They would drop the rat in the water and leave him there. The rat would paddle for a few minutes, and then it would stop, and then it would sink to the bottom and drown. And over and over they did this to see if any of them would continue to try to struggle and save themselves and try to get out of the water. Every single rat. Put them in, it would paddle for a couple minutes, and then it would just sink to the bottom and drown. The second set, they did a very similar experiment. They put the rat in, they waited about 10 seconds while the rat paddled, and then they lifted the rat out. And then they put the rat back in. Those rats continued to swim for 24 hours. They had given them hope that they would be lifted out again. Scientific experiment. The, the, the results were continuously the same. Those rats that had not been given hope stopped paddling and just resigned themselves to drowning. The rats that had been given hope continued paddling as long as they could. Go to 1 Corinthians 15. First, the end of 1 Corinthians 15 is Paul's discourse on death. And this is the essence of hope. He says, uh, verse 51, Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump, for the trumpet shall sound, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruption shall have put on incorruption, and this mortal shall have put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death swallowed up in victory. O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? The sting of death is sin, the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's stop there. What does that matter? It gives us hope for the future. But Paul didn't stop there. Look at the last verse. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as you know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. That's the the true hope. Never quit. I'm going to continue going on and serving God. I'm going to continue to let Him control my life. I'm going to continue to uphold Him and to focus on Him as the sole motivation of everything I do because I have hope. People who give up and quit and can't handle the Christian life because it's too hard, because there's too many struggles, because God doesn't give me what I want, I didn't get the good things that I expected when I got saved, they really don't have hope. Because an evidence of hope is that we continue to persevere in the work of the Lord. We're zealous for good works. That's what Paul says in Titus. Where the, One night there was a man at dinner. He had spent many summers in Maine. He loved to tell stories, and he was telling his dinner mates a story, a true story, about a town that was to be flooded. They were planning to build a dam. This town that was in the valley was going to be completely submerged in water. This was plans that were going to happen years into the future. 
And yet when that news was broken to the town people, people stopped fixing their houses. They stopped painting things. They started to let them go in disrepair. Just let them run down because what's the point? There's no hope. It's going to be lost anyway. Why repair anything when the whole village was to be wiped out? And the town literally fell apart. The dam was never built. But the town fell apart and the people left. Because there was no hope. The man told this story and then he said, as an explanation, where there's no faith in the future, there's no power in the present. And that's the truth of hope. Where there's no faith in the future, there's no power in the present. Why aren't we diligent in performing and living in and relying on God's power to perform His work in our lives, to fulfill those things that He wants us to do? Because our hope's not in the future. We're looking too much about the present. We're focused on the things that we need to survive right now, the things that we want right now, the things that we desire right now. But when our hope is truly in the future, that gives us power for the present. Psalm 119.47 says, And I will delight myself in thy commandments, which I love. God's work will be our first priority, will be the thing that we delight to do. That's an evidence of hope. 1 John 5 says, By this we know we love the children of God when we love God and keep His commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not grievous. Because we have hope. What does your life say about your hope? What does how you live say about where your hope is founded? Are you longing for the day when Christ is coming back to judge the earth? Or are you afraid of what he's going to find in your life? Do you delight in God's work? Or do you consider striving on in good works to be tedious and unrewarding? If your hope is not in the future promise of heaven and a glorified life with Christ, God offers hope. We can have perfect hope. But it's got to be in God. It's got to be in the future of what He promises. We have to find our hope in Christ and let go of the false hope of this world. Let's pray. Father, we thank You that You have given us absolute hope. It's not just a wish. not something that may or may not happen. We know for a fact what's going to be at the end of time. You've told us. That's the only absolute we have to hold on to. So I pray that you would challenge us to grasp onto that truth, to be motivated by that truth, to continue to be steadfast in doing your work because we know that you're coming back someday. We know that you're going to reward those, not just that did good works, but who lived in you, who are controlled by your Spirit, we're motivated by a love for God. That's our hope. Help us to understand that day by day as we go through our daily activities, as we look around and see people who are lost and on their way to hell. And I pray that you would give us a compassion and a motivation, as Jude tells us, to pull them out of the fire, 
saving them from destruction. Help us to realize what our lives should be like now because of the hope that we have in you and what you're going to do in us. And through it all, we'll give you the glory and praise because it's all about you. It's all about your Son. May we exalt you in our lives, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to close with hymn number 407, My Faith Looks Up to the